Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. All right, so we are now, as I mentioned, we're back in our study of Matthew. We'll pick back up here in Matthew 24. Um, Here in 24 and 25, we have the Olivet Discourse. This is is Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives. Now, Jesus, if you recall, is in Jerusalem now. He is in the last week of his earthly life and ministry. In fact, he's now only days from his crucifixion, and he has departed from the temple. He has left the temple. He's across from the Temple Mount, across the the Kidron Valley, and he is on the Mount of Olives. And he is seated, and he's instructing his disciples. Now, it is here where he has been speaking first of the destruction of the temple, but then also of the events of the end time, including the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, and the signs of his second coming. Of the rapture of the church, which we believe is an imminent event uh, on on the calendar of the end times events, it's the next thing. It's the very next thing that's going to happen. Uh, Jesus says in in verse 44 of chapter 24, he says, Therefore you also be ready, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I believe that here he is speaking of the rapture because of his second coming. There are signs. There there is prophecy. We've We've been given considerable insight into the timing of the second coming. If you look at the prophecy in Daniel, if you look at the events in Revelation, we know that when the abomination of desolation appears, when the Antichrist is seated in the temple, that three and a half years from that point will be his second coming, the end of the tribulation and his second coming. So when Jesus talks about an event that nobody knows, that you're not going to be able to expect, that you're not going to be able to anticipate, I believe it's this first event, the rapture, which is really kind of the first aspect of his second coming. And so, Jesus is saying, be ready. Be watchful. Now, Jesus picks up this imagery then. He's been continuing as he's teaching. Remember, we've considered the first part, Matthew 24. Now we move, make our way to the end of that, into 25. And this is all one conversation, though, or one sermon. It all fits together. So Jesus is continuing to elaborate on this. He's continuing to give them imagery and examples and parables, as we'll consider here this morning. And in verse 45, he says, Who then saying, here's a question for you as it pertains to these things, to being ready, to being watchful. Jesus asks the question, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made rule over his household to give them food in due season? Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Jesus here is giving the imagery of a servant who's saying, the servant here that's faithful in taking care of the, of the, the work of his master, being ready for his return, he's the faithful one. And so this helps to reinforce the fact that we are called to be watchful. We're called to be watchful. We're called to be ready. But not just for the sake of being watchful and ready, but so that we might be found faithful when he comes. Jesus isn't going to come back and go, oh, good for you. You were waiting. You were ready. Hey, right on. See you later. 
No, it, it's so that we are ready for his return and all that comes with it. Further, in, further ahead here in Matthew 25, and we'll consider that here in a little bit, we'll read in verse 21 of chapter 25 these words that often are quoted, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen, when I hear those words, immediately what happens in my mind is I think those are the words that I want to hear Jesus say to me. These are words that we should all long to hear at the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this would be the title of my message today. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you see, to finish well, that should be our aim. For some of us, maybe all of us, our beginnings may have been a little rocky. Praise God for His grace and His mercy. Amen? To finish well. That is what we should be longing for. That is our aim. But as Jesus' last sermon, and so think about that, within the context here of Matthew, this really is, I mean, he's, Jesus is going to speak more. He's going to instruct his disciples more. Of course, there's going to be the Last Supper uh, as they celebrate the Passover meal together. But this is really, this is the last time that Jesus here is sitting and teaching. And here in his last sermon, he, that as this continues to unfold here on this hillside, we find also that there are things we must consider should we desire to finish well some questions if you will that we must ask ourselves based off of what jesus says and as we consider these things here this morning we're going to find four questions that we will want to consider lest we find ourselves not in the camp of the faithful those who finish well but rather the likes of the evil servant to which jesus now speaks of verse 48 But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. And so he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but verse 51 doesn't sound too pleasant, does it? Now, when it says here that he shall be cut in two, I don't necessarily think that means he's going to be sawn in two. Some believe that that's maybe what it means. I I think in, in, in some respects, it means that there's going to be a beating of this servant, that in effect, he will be cut. And, and he will appoint him then his portion with what? The hypocrites, the posers, the fakers, the very things that Jesus has been addressing now for several chapters. Those people who pretend to be something but are an entirely different thing. And he says, there there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a terrible place to be. And so you see what we must understand here is that there are really only two ways before each of us. That is the fact of the matter. There's two options in front of us. There is the way of the faithful, the one way that leads to Christ, that leads to God. There are not many ways to Him. And there is a way that leads to destruction. The way of the faithful who are, who are looking for and, and hastening the day of His return, as, as Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, that is the way of the faithful. The people looking to Jesus. The people longing for Him. And that there is the way of the evil servant. But here's what we must understand. There's no in-between. 
When people in this world say, well, that whole Jesus thing isn't for me, well, then the hell thing is. There is no middle ground. It's either God or the enemy, Satan. Now, let's consider then for a moment the characteristics of the evil servant. In what way was he unfaithful? In what way was he not ready? There's three things I think we see in this passage. One, he had a disregard for the master's return. This is the person who says of God, all this Jesus is coming back stuff? Ah, I don't know about that. People have been saying that for years. Where is he? Anyhow, right? You've heard that before maybe. And, and, and maybe it's that person who then says, and, and all these people trying to live for Christ, and, and he's not even coming back. And, and meanwhile, look, look at all that I'm missing out on. Look at all the pleasures of the world that other people seem to be doing just fine, chasing after the things of the world. They're blessed. They have money. They're, they're going on vacations. They're, they're buying stuff. They're doing all these things. But it's the Christians who are you know, living this miserable life because they're waiting for Jesus to come back. That's how many people see it, right? So there becomes in their hearts this disregard for the master's return. Secondly, we see that there is then a disregard for the well-being of others. And, and what happens here is as the person's world becomes more and more about themselves, as they become more and more selfish and inclined to chase after the things that they want, because, hey, I don't think he's even really coming back. Well, then they begin to disregard other people. And as they begin to chase after the things that they want, and as they begin to disregard other people in their selfishness, three, they begin to indulge in the pleasures of the world. Here in this passage, it says drunkenness. And it is. It's drunkenness. It's excess leisure. It's decadence. It's taking part in all of the things that the world has to offer. That's what we see in the unfaithful servant. And so the first question for us this morning, the first of four, write this down if you're taking notes, is this. Are you looking for his return? Are you looking for his return? You see, in looking for his return, you will keep yourself from the traps that snared the evil servant. If we are looking for him, if we are watchful, if we are thinking, as it were, about him and his return, we are going to keep ourselves ready. The 18th century preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards, upon recognizing his own need to be watchful and ready, stated, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. It was upon making this statement that he developed 70 resolutions, 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards that he would then review on a regular basis. Each week he would review these in an effort to hold himself accountable and to model and uphold such values in his life. Now, in my opinion, all 70, of them are of value, but three in particular stand out uh, for the context of our study this morning. Edwards writes in three of his resolutions, he says, I resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Think if you were making a regular habit and routine daily, weekly, monthly, annually of just reading through these resolutions and saying to yourself, and, and you say your name, but to, to me to say, Brennan, never do anything which you would be afraid to do if it was the last hour of your life. 
Lord, if this is the last hour of my life, how would I live it? How would I spend it? He says, I resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet sound. Those may seem very similar, but we have a little bit more verbiage there that that brings to mind the the imagery of, uh, of, of the end days, of the end times. Again, creating a habit or a routine of considering, if this were that moment, how would I live? And third, he says, I resolve to ask myself at the end of every day, every week, every month, and every year, wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better. That seems like a big question to ask, but a good one nonetheless. If at the end of every day you find yourself going, what in my day should I have done better? But you see, we live in a culture today that, that, that largely says, well, that's, uh, I don't, I don't want to do that because that makes me feel uncomfortable or that makes me feel bad about myself or that makes me feel condemned. Well, remember, condemnation is not from the Lord. If there's a sense of, of condemnation, then you can reject that as from the enemy, not from the Lord. But rather, conviction is an important thing. And so if, if the Holy Spirit allows conviction into your life to say, you know what, you do need to do this differently. You should do this better. Well, then take it and receive it. And how about we as Christians who are on this earth with the express purpose of our lives bringing glory to God to say, yes, Lord, I will. I'll, I'll do it better tomorrow. And it won't be for my glory, but for yours. And so you see, when we are about being watchful, when we are about thinking about and considering the things of the Lord, keeping at the forefront of our mind His return, it will begin to and should begin to change how we live. Chapter 25, verse 1, Jesus then moves into another parable, saying, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Again, Jesus now gives us another parable, this time of a wedding celebration. This would have been a Jewish wedding. Now, the Jewish custom for a wedding was as follows, and and this is very high level. You can research this further if you'd like. But the, the general pattern of a Jewish wedding was first the betrothal. And this really was the most important part. The bride at the time of the betrothal was purchased in, in, in somewhat of a, an arranged marriage, though there was certainly an element of consent for the bride. It wasn't entirely like what we see in certain cultures. It wasn't entirely forced, and the purchase there was really a dowry of sorts that was paid, and it was at this point, it was in the betrothal, that they were really legally married. It was at this point, when that transaction was made, that there was an agreed-upon marriage. That's why we have insight there at the beginning of Matthew, there in the Gospel, where when, when all of a sudden Mary's pregnant now, and Joseph is thinking, what do I do? And you might be thinking, well, they weren't technically married yet. Yes, they were. At this point, there was a legal union. There would have to be a certificate of divorce that was given. And so this is why Joseph is is even more so unsettled as to how to move forward in this situation. But here's the thing. At this time, at the time of the betrothal, though a purchase was made for the bride, the bride would still remain in her father's home for a time. Most often it was around a year. Where would the bridegroom go during this time? Well, the bridegroom, having gone to his father's house to prepare a place 
for his bride would return, often at an unknown hour. If that sounds familiar to you, you might be thinking of John 14, verse 2 and 3. As Jesus himself said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see, Jesus intentionally uses the imagery here of a marriage. Marriage itself points to the relationship between the church, his bride, and Christ, the bridegroom. That a purchase has been made. Jesus, the bridegroom, has come. A betrothal has happened. Christian, you are in that relationship. He has bought you with a price. The Holy Spirit has sealed you. And yes, He has gone. Where has He gone? To His Father's house to prepare a place just as a bridegroom would for His bride. And we, being the bride, don't know when it is that He's going to come. No different than the the Jewish tradition. But He will. He says, I will come for you. And what I do, I will take you back with me to my Father's house. For what? The marriage celebration, the marriage supper, just as His church, I believe, will go with Him in the rapture to His Father's house, to the throne room of heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb before we then go with Him in His second coming. Amen. Now here's the thing, when the bridegroom would come, as we see here in this parable, there would be a great procession. There would be a a, a trumpet sound uh, that would call the bridal party out who would play a role in leading the way for the bridegroom to his bride. Or he would take her to the marriage supper at his father's house. And so in verse 6 we see, And at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Friends, the second question for us this morning is, Are you ready? And listen, in this context here, less about are you watchful and looking But are you ready at all to go when he comes? Is there oil in your lamp? Because you see, verse 11 and 12 says, Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Why is this important? Well, not only is this sobering for us, if we consider it rightly, but you see, for these For these who were now being turned away, there had been an invitation to the wedding. There was an invitation. And it even seems they thought they'd be going. There were outward signs of their intentions. Yet upon their arrival, which was too late, the bridegroom declared, I don't know you. And so a fitting question to ask, and it would be our third question here this morning, is have you really trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Listen, I don't know if it is a fair takeaway from the parable this morning. We need to be careful how much we pull from parables. I think oftentimes a mistake of 
of the church, a mistake of teachers, is to try and analyze every little detail of a parable to make it fit. And that's not the way they were generally used. Nevertheless, I can't help but in this particular parable see here that often in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is likened to oil, even the oil of a lamp. And I wonder this morning if there's anyone, whether here watching online or someone who will listen later on, are you one who is dressed for a wedding? You have the outward signs of Christianity, but there is no oil in your lamp. You've yet to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that seals you on the day of salvation. And listen, we've got to consider this here because Sunday after Sunday, we've been making our way through these last chapters of Matthew where Jesus deals with hypocrisy and true and false conversion. Pastor Dave Chafee last week with the message that, that, that parts of which came from this very chapter. He didn't, I, I didn't plan that for him. I didn't tell him, well, here's what would be really convenient for you to, to teach on this Sunday. No, I asked him in advance, hey, I'm going to give you time to teach that morning. He said, I've been working on a message. I think it'll be ready. The Holy Spirit was doing that. And so we must ask the question, is God working on the heart or the hearts of some here today? Is this you? It was a beautiful thing in my own life when the Holy Spirit revealed to me, this is you, Brennan. And I knew in that moment that should Jesus return, I would not have been ready. Yet I had spent nearly my entire life telling everyone that I was. The sad thing is, had Jesus returned before I had really surrendered my life, rather than well done, good and faithful servant, I'd have heard, I don't know you. Jesus says, verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Ready and watchful. This is what we are to be. But here's the thing. Does that then mean that we are to be a people who just sort of sit now, looking out our window, waiting on His return. All the while, if we sat here right now, let's say, let's put this into practice. Let's pull up the shades here in our beautiful sanctuary and let's just, let's never leave here. Let's turn our chairs around, look out the window, peer into the sky, hopeful that we see Jesus coming on the clouds. And meanwhile, all the people that walk by, all the cars that drive by, all the people who come up and try and spray paint our building. We have cameras now. Watch out. We just go, oh, don't pay attention to them. We're ready and watchful, right? Don't, don't, don't go out there. We're just ready and watchful. Now, that sounds silly, but in many respects, that is exactly what the church has done. Far too many churches, even ours at various times, because it's easy for us to fall into a rut, fail to truly engage the way that we're intended to. We cannot allow a perishing world to just continue on in ignorance while we are ready and watchful. And Jesus shifts gears here to address this very point. Verse 14, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
Another parable here, this time of a master who gives to his servants portions of what he has. This would have been common in this time. A good way for a master to ensure his resources were cared for well would be to divide them up amongst his trusted staff. But note here that it was a long time before his return. Let that be an encouragement to you as you consider what seems to us like a delay in our Lord's coming. It was a long time. I can't help but wonder if the servants ever wondered, is he coming back? Maybe I don't need to worry about this anymore. Maybe I can go ahead and just spend these talents on myself. But nevertheless, he does return. Albeit, long after they expected, he returns to settle his accounts. Verse 20, so he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done. Good and faithful servant, you were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. What a wonderful statement here. Now here's what we must understand. A talent was a weight. It was a measure of money. It was dependent, to, the value was dependent on the uh, type of material that it was. Gold, copper, silver, etc. Now this parable, it's this parable itself that gives us what is now our understanding of a talent. Okay, when we use the word talent, we think of it differently. We don't think of it in financial terms. We think of it as giftings, our abilities, And that would be right based off of an understanding of this passage. And so in context, it is money, but our application is certainly our own gifts and talents. Both, by the way, are resources given to us by God. Now of these first two servants that were found faithful and received a great reward, why? Because they were watchful? No, because they did something with the resources that they were given. Now, Were they watchful? I'm sure they were. The the fact that they were doing something suggests that they were, that they were thinking about him and his return and wanting to be found faithful when he did. But it prompted more in their lives than just waiting. They were busy about the business of their master, making much of what he had given them. What of the third servant? Then he who had received, verse 24, the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. It's as if they're saying, you got the Midas touch. You can make things happen where it doesn't even make sense for it to happen. And I was afraid, verse 25, and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Now, some of you may be thinking this morning, oh, poor guy, he was afraid. You're very merciful. But look at Jesus' words here. Verse 26, But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. 
For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our fourth question this morning is this. Are you serving him with the resources he has given you? Because to do so is not really an option. It is necessary fruit of salvation. That is, it's an indication of whether you really know Him. We don't work to know Him, but because we know Him, we work. Amen? Now please understand. First here, are we doing this to... Are we working, as I've just said, are we working to earn salvation? No. You can't earn it. (laughs) You don't deserve it. It's a work of His grace. Praise God. So you're not doing this to earn anything. This is not about works to earn favor. Now that is easy to fall into. Even if we don't have a sense of works-based salvation, it's easy for us to still fall into a pattern of working in order to earn something. I can speak from experience. Knowing fully, I can't earn my salvation. But then thinking somehow that the more things I do, that the better I'm going to be that the more He's going to be pleased with me, which may sound at first good. Oh, yeah, the Lord's going to be blessed. He's going to love your service. But if it continues to just be service to say, Lord, please be pleased with me, He couldn't be any more pleased with you today than based off of everything you've done than the, the day He saved you. It's everything all at once. And when you find yourself, if you're like me, with your head hurting a little bit to say, how is that possible? then good news, you've just begun to scratch a little bit of the surface of grace. Because it doesn't make sense to us. Because everything in us and in our flesh says, the more you do for me, the more I like you. Right? If we're honest, if I meet a stranger out on the street who maybe says, here's a buck, or maybe I I drop something, they pick it up, and I say, well, that's nice. I think, oh, good guy. But there's no way that I think they're that I, that I feel like they are just so precious to me now as compared to someone whom I'm really close with, right? It's just the way that it is. But the way that grace works is that I go up to that person, I say, I love you just as much as I love them and this person and this person and this person. It's amazing. Now, so we have to understand that we're not doing this to earn something. But second here also, please note this, and this is important, that each servant received different amounts. Scripture says, according to their abilities. When it comes to our giftings, Christian, we all have different gifts. And quite frankly, some people have more. And that doesn't make you more valuable or less value valuable. The fact of the matter is, and I wrestle with this as a pastor, you look at some pastors out there, here's the deal. You attending Calvary Chapel, I'm your pastor. But I know that you guys, in the course of your study, have a lot of other pastors. You're like, oh, I'd love to listen to this guy, right? And that's totally cool. It's fine. It only hurts a little bit. <laughs> when somebody says, oh, man, yeah, I'm, I'm reading this new book, or I watched this sermon, or what? Please do that, okay? I am not in any way suggesting not to. But it proves the point that you go, man, I wish I could do what that guy was doing. I wish I could crank out three books this month, five Bible studies and, and a sermon that gets six million views. But it'd be foolish for me to spend time there focusing on that. But I can't lie to you and say sometimes I don't. 
And what I need to understand is that God has uniquely gifted that person. Praise God for the reach that he has and the way in which he has been gifted, the talents that he has. But also understand that they're different than mine and God doesn't look at the two of us standing side by side and go, man, Brennan, you better up your game. No, he's saying, Brennan, I want you to be faithful with what I gave you. And so you see the Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 12. The body of Christ is made up of different members, each with a different purpose, but all part of the body. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. But not just created for good works, it says of the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, what that means is you were created for good works and those good works that you were created for have been identified beforehand by God the Father uniquely for you. So it makes even more sense then why He would call us His workmanship or otherwise translated, His work of art. It means you're special. It means you're uniquely gifted and called. But here's the other thing. Those good works that he's created for you, he doesn't say, here, here's the good works created for you that other people can walk in. Or here, here are the good works that I've created for this person. Why don't you try and mimic those? No, the important part then for us is about understanding, Lord, what is it that you've created me for? How have you gifted me? How have you called me? How have you equipped me? and then faithfully walk in those things. It is our tendency often then to try, and so here's the other thing that I want to touch on here, our remaining time this morning, is it's our tendency often then because we don't have necessarily a clear awareness of how the Lord has uniquely gifted us that then we just try to do everything or nothing at all. Do I have anybody who, uh, like me, has a little bit of analysis paralysis at times? And you make your list, and it's like 3,000 things long. Do you, know, do you know, some people will find this absolutely crazy. My wife absolutely knows this about me. Saturdays are one of the most stressful days of the week for me. I hate Saturdays. Sort of. Right? Because it's this day that sometimes has ministry stuff, sometimes doesn't have ministry stuff, sometimes has a little ministry, and, and then a little bit of the, the home stuff. And then I have all these lists, right? And I wake up on Saturday morning, and I'm like, this is supposed to be a productive day. And I look at it all, and I go, I want to get it all done by the end of the day. And then I freak out, melt down, and be like, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I don't know. I struggle with that, right? The same thing happens in ministry. Rarely does it seem that we are comfortable with what we can do. I get wrapped up in all the things that I can't do, and I'm rarely satisfied with the thing that I can. The exception, of course, being those awesome people in the room who are super balanced. <laughs> and it's probably because you've got some experience of understanding who God has created you to be. And you've become increasingly comfortable in that. And that should be the aim for us all. As I've alluded to already, this is in many respects part of my story, even as of late. If you'll indulge me for a moment, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago upon Ashley and I's return from Florida that we had learned some things during our time there. It wasn't a vacation uh, to Florida, though in some respects it functioned as such, but we had the opportunity to go and meet with a gentleman by the name of uh, Ron Cook. Ron, if you're watching this message, here you go. Uh, Ron is a pastor for pastors uh, with a ministry called Care for Pastors. And among numerous things that week that I was confronted with personally, the reality was apparent that I consistently attempt to do everything. 
And I don't say that from a standpoint of, hey, look at me, I try to do everything. No, I'm saying that, look at the idiot up here who tries to do everything. And often, because God hasn't called us to such, I do it in my own strength, and then that is really a guarantee of failure. This has played out in ministry over the last several years, and whether you know it or not, it's affected all of you as members of the body of Calvary Chapel Northeast. Because here in this relatively small church, what is often said is we do so many things. And in some respects, it's great. It's great when we can say, hey, our church does all these things. And and, and it feeds, if you will, sometimes the ego to go, look at all this church is doing. Praise God. All the things we're involved in, so impressive. But here's the question that must be asked. Is it what the Lord wants us to do? And I don't know. Honestly, of several ministries in this church today, I cannot tell you with confidence that the Lord wants us to do it. And that's a problem. For five years, I've been wrestling with what the Lord is calling this church to. And in my attempts to chase it and to figure it out, I look at all the other churches and go, well, they're doing this, and this is working well, and they're doing this, and they're doing this, and we've got to do this, and we've got to do this. All with the greatest of intentions. But we must be able to answer the question, I must be able to answer the question of, Lord, what is this church here for? What are the talents that he has given us? And how are we to be faithful to those? So where do we go from here with that little teaser that I do not have the time to go into today? And and rest assured, I can't delve into all of this today, and you're going to hear more about this in the weeks to come. And don't worry, nothing crazy, okay? I'm not going anywhere that I know of, (laughs) okay? Always got to keep that out there. I've learned throughout the years, don't say never, okay? (laughs) Because then you end up in a school in Indiana, even though you said, I will never live in Indiana. Um, So we're going to deal with this here in the weeks to come. And again, nothing that you need to be concerned about. If anything, be prayerful about it and excited for the Lord to do in and through this church what he wants to do. Because what I can tell you is this, that in my efforts to challenge each of you to pursue Jesus and to understand how he has gifted you and to be faithful with that, I need to do the same both for me and my family, as well as for this church. And while this is going to take some time, so bear with us, some things won't maybe look very different at all, and some things maybe will. I hope some things do, because we as a ministry are going to begin practicing saying no more often. And this is going to require some practice. This doesn't happen overnight. And if I could use what I think is somewhat of an overused adage, but an effective one nevertheless, we are going to begin saying no to the good things so that we can say yes to the best things. Because rest assured, the things that we've said yes to, it's not like it's these foolish things that it's just like, why would we ever do that? No, it's stuff that you're like, yeah, we ought to do that. If we don't do that, who else will? It's good stuff, but it might not be what the Lord has for us. And, and listen, to do so is scary to me. I'll just be totally honest with you. It scares me. It scares me to not try to do everything. And I won't go into all the reasons why. I'll just tell you that it's a thing I struggle with, in part because to not do every good thing often feels to me like failure. But the truth is that by trying to do every good thing, it results in failure. And there are too many times where I have been weary with a heavy burden, heavy laden with so many good works, trying to just do it all in the strength of my flesh. And no doubt as a result, 
many of you as it pertains to ministry here in the church or you can relate to me in your own lives. Yet, in the midst of all that, and in the midst of feeling all of that, I'm aware of, that, of the fact that my Savior tells me that His burden is light. And that He invites me into rest. And sometimes I go, Lord, why am I not experiencing that? Why am I not feeling that? And then I, I heap guilt upon myself because I think, well, to rest, that's weak. No, that's biblical. To Sabbath is biblical. And in many respects, I fear that I have robbed this church of Sabbath. And I'm intent on correcting that. And I know also that rest does not equal laziness, as evidenced in Scripture. And so there must be a better way. And that way is doing what He has called me, called us to do, and to do so in the strength of the Spirit, not the flesh. So I pray that this resonates, especially in this context. And, and just please know that we are officially on that journey as a church. Okay? Let's go th quickly through the end of the chapter here. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Note this, when the Son of Man comes. Jesus here saying this. This is Jesus saying, when I come. This is no longer a parable. This is Him rounding out the teaching. When I come in my glory, which by the way, all the people who say, yeah, I think Jesus was a good guy, good teacher. No. He was either a lunatic or God based off of the things like this that He says. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Now this is at His second coming, at the end of the tribulation, before the 1,000 year reign. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is what's called the judgment of nations, of those who have endured through the time of the tribulation. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And you see, as it pertains to working to earn favor, they didn't even know they were doing it, and that's the way that it should be for us. Working so faithfully, just doing the things that we know we're supposed to do. And so you see, in like fashion, the things that we are called to do are so often found in ordinary daily activities that you may not even be paying attention to. Yet it's how the Lord is using you. And so in terms of being faithful with our giftings, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to enter into cross-cultural missions and fly to the Middle East. However, being faithful may require that you do so, but sometimes it's simply demonstrating the love of Christ in your own community. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them as saying, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Verse 46, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but 
the righteous into eternal life. I'll end as we begin. There are two ways before each of us. There is a way that leads to life and there is a way that leads to destruction. And it should be noted that such destruction is everlasting. It is not temporary, nor are there second chances after he returns. Is that a fear tactic? No. It's a truth tactic. And truth is absolute. It is not relative, no matter what our culture is trying to tell us today. And so we must ask the question, which way will we go? If you desire to finish well, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, then be ready, trust in Jesus, be watchful, and serve him and others with the resources that you've been given, your time, your energy, your resources and talents. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning, Lord, for our time together. We pray, Lord, that it's been pleasing to you and that the words that have gone forth, Lord, uh, would by your Spirit, Lord, be used in our lives to bring necessary change. Father, do that work in our hearts here this morning, I pray. Each and every one of us, Lord, myself included, help us to take it to heart, to be ready, Lord, to be trusting in you, to be busy about you, your work and your business, but in a way, Lord, that's in accordance with your will and that brings you glory. Father, we love you and we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for our time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.